If you're being seated, please turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I wonder, do, um, do any of you remember any of your grade school teachers? Do you remember all of them? I don't remember all of them. I was thinking uh, just this week, I remember uh, my first grade teacher very vividly. I don't remember second, third, fifth, or sixth. I don't know if that says something about me or not, but my memory. But I remember my first grade teacher very vividly because she changed my life. She taught me how to read. And I loved her. She was a great teacher. And when she taught me how to read, it just opened up all these new worlds for me. I loved, I was so excited when I learned how to read. I still love to read. Uh, but I remember as a first grader learning how to read and coming home and showing my parents all these wonderful new magic tricks that I could do, sounding out words and everything, and we would drive down the road and I would read every sign. Every sign, you know. McDonald's. Can, do we need to stop and get a hamburger? Uh, A-N-W. Can we stop and get root beer? Uh, Exxon. Do we need to stop and get gas? I mean, I, just, I read absolutely every sign. And I loved her. Mrs. Cosby was her name. I remember Mrs. Cosby. I don't remember a lot of my other teachers. I don't remember seventh or eighth. Vaguely remember one of my ninth grade teachers. And a couple, but I remember my first grade teacher because she had such an impact on my life. But you know, even the greatest teachers can do very little with us if we're not willing to learn. Jesus Christ was the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth, but there were a lot of people who didn't learn anything from Jesus because their hearts were hard to him. I want you to read with me in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. It says, When a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed. Some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him pay attention, let him listen, and not just allow the information to pass through his mind with intellectual understanding, but let him hear and respond in obedience. It says, The disciples began questioning him as to what the parable meant. He said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from them, from their heart, so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation and testing, they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries, and they are choked with riches, and they're choked with pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. They hold it fast and they bear fruit with perseverance. Who will we be? Some were were intrigued by what Jesus said and, and they were curious and they came along, but they really didn't 
want to respond in obedience. It was more like a show for them when they heard Jesus. Others were actually very resistant. They wanted to know what he was saying so they could contradict him. But then there were some who followed after Jesus and they came with an honest and sincere heart. They didn't understand everything that he said, but they really wanted to know because they really trusted Jesus and they wanted to do what he had to say. Which soil will we be this semester? This semester we're going to look specifically at the teachings of Jesus Christ. But for us to learn anything beyond a little bit more information about the life and ministry of Jesus, we have to come with hearts that say beforehand, Jesus, whatever it is you say to me, I will obey. Because, as it has been said many times, God does not reveal his will to the curious. But to those who say to him, thy will be done. And so as we begin this series on the teachings of Jesus Christ, I want us to just take a moment right at the beginning here of this message and let's go before the Lord and say, God, make my heart receptive this semester to whatever it is that Jesus Christ would say to me. Remove those barriers, maybe those thorns and thistles, the worries and cares of the world that would choke out your words so that I could not be transformed by the teaching of Jesus. Let's take just a few moments before the Lord and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I pray for each person present, not least myself, that you would remove any hardness in our hearts, that you would remove cares and concerns that you can handle, distractions that you would churn up the soil in our hearts if there is sin that we're unwilling to relinquish, that we would confess it now that you would dig deeply in that soil of our hearts, that you'd make it soft and receptive. We would hear the words of Jesus Christ and we would respond with with joy and glad obedience. I pray, Father, that you would protect us from the adversary who would come even now at this moment and he would snatch away the word of your truth that can change us and transform us. Father, we pray that Christ's words would be powerful and effective in each of us individually and in this body of believers. It's in Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen. This semester, we are going to be looking at uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you this morning, as we introduce the series, I want to give you five characteristics of Jesus' teaching or uh, five reasons that we should listen to his teachings. The first is this. Jesus Christ's teaching was supremely authoritative. I want you to turn with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. And verse 21. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. It says, They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and he began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Just then, there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. 
the people recognized this was something that they had never seen before. They had been taught God's word their entire lives, but they'd never seen teaching like this. Jesus was teaching with authority, and this idea of authority biblically contains two concepts. One is, is power, and the second is uh, the right to exercise that power. Good authority has both. It has both the right to exercise power and the power itself. Sometimes you will run into someone who has power, but they have no right. They're a dictator or an autocrat. Sometimes you will run into someone who has a lot of authority, but no power. A king who's been disposed and he is off his throne. But in Jesus, they saw genuine authority, something that they really had never seen in their own teachers before. And it wasn't just the words that Jesus was saying or his style of teaching. There was something different about him. Genuine biblical authority comes from the person. There's something different about the person. And for us to understand Jesus' authority, we need to understand really first, who was he? In the New Testament, we see Jesus presented in three primary roles. There There are many roles that he takes on, but there are three primary roles. The first role that he had was that of prophet. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 3, and verse 22. This is Peter's second sermon. He's preaching it to uh, the leadership of Israel as well as a crowd that has surrounded them. And after he has proclaimed that Jesus is God's Christ, God's Messiah, he says this in verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Uh, Moses was considered the greatest prophet that Israel had ever had. Moses was the one who delivered the law to the people. And Moses promised the people of Israel, God's going to send another prophet. He's going to send a greater prophet, and you need to listen to him. Why? Verse 23, it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed or cut off from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. In other words, Peter says, Moses started it. He said, God's going to send a greater prophet. And then every prophet from Samuel onward announced, God is ultimately going to send the greatest prophet and you need to listen to him. All the prophets pointed to the one prophet, that is Jesus Christ. What does a prophet do? Well, we usually think about a prophet telling the future. But really, the primary thing that a prophet would do was simply tell the word of God. And if you look at most of the the prophets, prophetic books in the Old Testament, what you see is, uh, you see some future telling, some foretelling, but what you see more is them expounding what God has already said. The prophets spend most of their time expounding the law. Your current condition, why you're suffering like you are, is because of the law. You disobeyed, God promised you this cursing. Now, your future is based upon what God already said. He already promised. And so they expound the law again about the future faithfulness of God to the people. So the prophets are always expounding the law. Periodically, they have new revelation and they tell specifics like Daniel. Here's what's going to happen in the future. But the bulk of what they do is to just tell and explain this is what God meant when he said that. And that's exactly what you see in Jesus' ministry. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Christ's most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And he quotes the Old Testament. 
And one of the things that Jesus does in this sermon is he affirms the validity of the word of God, which, after all, Jesus spoke because he was God. He says, I did not come to abolish it. I actually came to fulfill it. And in the sermon, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain to you what it really means because you have a lot of misconceptions. You have a lot of people who are out there now teaching the word of God, but they're misunderstanding what it really means. So let me explain it to you properly. You have heard it said, you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. But I say to you, That anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present and make your offering. Jesus says, this is what God really meant. It was beyond just... Don't go out and commit murder. It goes so much deeper and he expounds the law for them. He goes on in this chapter and expounds it further. Verse 27, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust for her in in his heart has already committed adultery. Verse 31, it was said whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you. That everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. Verse 33, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. Verse 34, but I say to you. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for for a tooth, but I say to you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In other words, let me help you understand what God's word really meant. That is the role of a prophet. Now, consequently, a prophet periodically had to say very, very, very difficult things to the people because they were not obeying the word of the Lord. And you notice in this section, Jesus wraps it up in verse 48 with something that's very difficult for them to hear. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Come again? (laughs) Okay, that was very helpful when you explained each of these commandments that our teachers had led us to misunderstand, and now we understand it. But what you're saying is the implication is that we actually have to be perfect like God is perfect? You got to be kidding. That's not good news, is it? That's very, very bad news. That's a hard word to hear. It's a hard word to hear. And periodically, as a prophet, Jesus had to say many hard words. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus didn't wait until the scribes and Pharisees were gone to make this pronouncement. He didn't say, hold on a second, guys, come over here. Woe to those scribes and Pharisees, they're hypocrites. No, he waited till they were right there with him, present, looking them in the eye, and he said, woe to you, which means you're in trouble. This is very, very bad news for you. Scribes, Pharisees, you're hypocrites. Wow. I bet everybody was shuffling around, feeling a little bit uncomfortable, disciples as well. You know, maybe they're saying, yeah, give it to them, Jesus. But they're all saying, "Uh uh-oh. You know, this could really get us in trouble. But Jesus is unashamed. 
He's right in their face. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus, just why don't you really just tell them what you really think? Woe to you, blind guides, verse 16, verse 17. Woe, you fools and blind men, verse 19, you blind men, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 24, you blind guides, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 26, you blind Pharisee. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Wow, that's called repetition, (laughs) kind of making his point, isn't he? Those who were resistant to the message of Jesus, he just pulled out the big guns. Because a prophet's job was to protect the people from their foolish decisions, to guide them in the way of truth. And even these Pharisees, he needed to break through the hardness of their heart Because he loved them too, but they were so hard, he had to break through and he gave them a hard word. But that's what a good shepherd does, isn't it? The sheep that keeps straying and straying and straying, what does the shepherd do? He goes to that sheep and he breaks the legs. But then he binds them up and he carries them. And so you see in Jesus not a, a continual harshness that's just something you want to avoid. You know, I've I've known people who think they're prophets. They're really just kind of obnoxious, right? But I've known other people who could speak with a prophetic voice. They could speak truth, truth into my life sometimes that I didn't want to hear. But deep down, I knew I needed to hear it. And it was helpful. It was a blessing because it helped turn me on a particular decision. And that's what Jesus did. He spoke truth. And when people were receptive and soft to the touch of Jesus in their lives, then you see this great compassion coming out of Jesus. He says, says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. So Jesus spoke with authority because he spoke first as a prophet. A prophet speaks the words of God. John chapter 12, Jesus said, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me, he has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. So Jesus spoke with authority because he spoke the very words of God. Second, Jesus fulfilled the role of a priest. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. There's the role of prophet. He spoke in the prophets previously, now he's speaking in the son, the ultimate prophet, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high." That is the role of the priest, to make purification of sins so that the people can remain in fellowship with God. That's what the priests always did in the Old Testament. When someone would sin, they would bring an offering. The priest would take that offering, slaughter that offering, and then lift it up before the Lord on behalf of the person. The priest was the intermediary. The common person couldn't directly approach God. They couldn't directly bring their offering. They had to bring it through the priest. 
And the priest would make the sacrifice on their behalf and restore their fellowship with God. So the priest stood in between the people and God. You may notice we have no priests on staff at Grace Bible Church. That's intentional. Uh, And it's not because I just don't want to wear a collar. Okay? I am not a priest. Because we only have one priest and it's Jesus Christ. Okay? There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. And so we go directly to Jesus Christ. Now, as we look out at a lost world, every single one of us function as priests below Jesus Christ. Somebody on staff doesn't function any more as a priest than anyone else because what you do is you try to reach out to people who don't know Jesus Christ and draw them to Christ, draw them to their great high priest who stands making intercession for them daily. We don't need another person to go directly into the very presence of God because Christ accomplished that for us. Turn over a few chapters to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1. Jesus Christ was from a different order of priesthood. He was not from the tribe of Levi. So he wouldn't qualify as an earthly priest in Israel. He was from the order of Melchizedek. It says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, King of righteousness, which then also means king of Salem or king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. He is a model for a new priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It's a priesthood that doesn't end in death, but it's a priesthood that will last forever because Jesus lives forever. So what has he done for us and what is he doing for us now? Verse 23. The former priests, that is the Levitical priests, they existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So when you sin and the adversary accuses you, Jesus is not dead, and Jesus is not asleep, and the accusation comes before the Father. That one's a sinner, not holy, can't come into your presence. Jesus said, sorry, I already paid for that sin. And he's always alert. He's always on duty. That is what it means to make intercession for you. He is speaking on your behalf to the Father right now, so that you always have perfect and complete access to the Father. That's what a priest does. Verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. And so when he came in and he made his sacrifice, he didn't offer the blood of bulls or goats, he offered his own blood. 
And because he was God in human flesh, God said that sacrifice is adequate for all sins, for all people, for all times. It is finished. There will never be a re-crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's not necessary because he paid our sins once and for all. So here we stand. If you are in Jesus Christ, you're safe because the blood of Jesus Christ covers you forever. Will you sin and when you fail again? Yes, you will. But he always stands as your intercessor, your high priest, pleading your case. I paid for that already. That is the essence of the gospel. Jesus paid it all. And you can have a perfectly and permanently restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. Third role that Jesus fulfilled is that of king. Now, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, there were several men who were both prophets and priests. Jeremiah and Ezekiel came from priestly families. They were also prophets. But there was never a person who served as prophet, priest, and king. Only Jesus Christ was prophet, priest, and king. Look back at Hebrews chapter 1 again. Verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That's the king. The heir of the universe, the one who will rule and reign on behalf of God. Through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, that's priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He took his authoritative role. Now he is waiting, it says, until God subjects all his enemies to him. Then he will come back and he will restore God's kingdom upon earth and he will reign forever. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be beside him. The very term Messiah means anointed one, and it was used to refer to the Davidic kings in the Old Testament. The Davidic king was called Messiah, that is anointed one, the one chosen by God to represent him and to rule and reign. Because the kings in Israel functioned so poorly, God had to send along prophets to rebuke the kings and to rebuke the people. But now we have in Jesus Christ one who perfectly fulfills all three roles, prophet, priest, and king. So when he speaks, he speaks with supreme authority, perfect authority. Consequently, everything that he says to us is true. It's the second characteristic of Jesus' teaching. It's absolutely true. John fourteen six. if you have not memorized this, here's your verse for the week, okay? I am the way. This is Jesus speaking. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus didn't speak to every subject on earth, but he spoke to the most important subject, which is how can a person be reconciled to God and go on and grow in the enjoyment of that relationship? How can they have life that lasts forever that is eternal? And how can they have life that is abundant or full? So he didn't speak to every issue, but every issue he spoke to, he spoke with perfect and absolute truth. There was nothing untrue in what he said. In fact, he himself was the embodiment of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the great high priest. I am the way that you can be reconciled to a relationship with God. Again, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's true. 
You can only be restored to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. If there had been many ways that God had provided, then the death of Christ was needless. But there is one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. And I encourage you, if you've never received that message before this morning, that you would just take a moment quietly. You don't even have to bow your head or close your eyes. You just, you just speak in your heart to God and say, God, thank you for causing Jesus Christ to die and pay the penalty for my sins. I accept that free gift. Thank you for the gift of life that lasts forever. Thank you that I have a great high priest who will always live and always make intercession for me. The moment that you do that, that debt of sin is removed completely and you have the guarantee that you will always live with God. If you already know Jesus Christ, I want to remind you, it's the beginning of the semester. If you've been around for a little while, you've noticed every Sunday I present the gospel. I hope you've noticed that. It's not accidental. Every Sunday, because I don't know every single individual. And uh, every Sunday, I want to make sure that the gospel is very clear. If you already know Jesus, when I begin presenting the gospel, don't check out on me. Okay, though this doesn't apply to me because I, I, I check, I got that part down. Let me read some other verses or, you know, whatever. No, don't check out on me. When that moment happens, I want you just to begin to pray. Okay, this is your responsibility during worship service. You stop and you pray. You pray for all the people sitting around you because you don't know all of them. You say, God, protect them from the lies of the enemy. Every semester I receive an email from a few people who say, you know, I was sitting in the worship service when you presented the gospel. Finally, the light came on. You know, I'd heard some of that before, but all of a sudden it came together. It made sense. And I understood this is true. And so when I begin to present the gospel, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you get to work. And you begin praying and beseeching God, God, protect us from the attack of the adversary who would come in and he would snatch that truth from people's minds around me, cause their hearts to be soft and open and receptive. Lord, give us a great harvest this semester of people who understand and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God's method for giving you life is to give you truth. This is how life works. Satan's methodology to destroy your life and make it not abundant but death-like is to lie to you and to lie to those around you. That's the way that he works. He is the father of lies. He's cloaked in deceit. That's all that he does. And we live in a culture that is just bombarding us with deceit. It's overwhelming us with deceit. And right now, I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, and it's amazing to me when they watch something on TV and they see an advertisement, they turn to me and they tell me the truth of that advertisement. You know, it's just amazing the power of that medium. They assume that it's true immediately, and I'm trying to train them. No, 99% of the time, it's a lie. You know, I want my kids to be skeptics, you know? (laughs) No, 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 they're probably lying to you. No, I don't want to be cynical, but come on. And, and with my son, we've had to walk through, like, you really believe that? Why do you believe it? Why would they be saying that to you? you know, filter it. And now the internet is absolutely everywhere. I mean, I, it's probably safe to say that 50% of you could be online at this moment. <laughs> Sports news, weather, sermons dra- dragging, podcasts, someone else's sermon. Please don't. (laughs) 
but you could be. All that information, all true, right? All of it, absolutely all of it. I love the emails that I get of the internet urban myths. I got one a little while back. I looked at one was um, that uh, a two million year old uh, Smithsonian went and investigated a two million year old head of Malibu Barbie that was found in somebody's backyard. That was one of the most original ones. Yeah, sure that happened. Um, if you really want it to happen, maybe you would believe that it that it would. It's everywhere. It's all around you. And what that does, that constant bombarding that we get with information, a lot of it untrue, a lot of it half true, is that it it dulls our senses and it removes us, as God's word says, from the simplicity and devotion to Christ. So what I would like for you to do even this semester is tune that out a bit and let Christ speak. Okay? Okay? Focusing on his teachings, simplicity and devotion to Christ. He's trustworthy. Everything that he says is absolutely true. Third, he is unrivaled in skill as a teacher. As a teacher, one of the things I love to do as I read the Gospels is just learn from Jesus as a teacher. He is amazing as a teacher. He can talk to anyone about anything. He can talk to old people. He can talk to children. He can talk to middle-aged people. He talks to those who who hate him and they're his opponents. He talks to people who who are favorably disposed to him. He talks to people who are curious. And for each person, he tailors the the conversation to what they need. You know, as a great teacher, he understands just because he's spoken, they haven't learned. And he wants people to learn and to be changed. And so he uses all kinds of different methodology with his people. Sometimes he asks them questions to provoke them. Who do people say that I am? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? Peter. He can talk to groups of thousands, small groups in a home, one-on-one. He makes up stories. You know, I think sometimes we forget the Good Samaritan, that story. Jesus just made that up. That's a, that's a made-up story. And, you know, a lot of times people think that when folks talk a lot that um, they got all their illustrations mapped out ahead of time. Not true. It's amazing. I'd say 40% of my illustrations just kind of happen on a Sunday morning. It just kind of pops into my mind. And I imagine Jesus being a master teacher He's looking at his audience. He's seeing their needs. He knows their history. Good Samaritan just kind of comes to him from the Lord. Because what's beautiful about that story is they can relate immediately to it because they knew that pathway. They knew that road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. They understood that it was very dangerous. People got beat up there all the time. So it's very common. And he's moving them from something they know and understand to something that they might not really understand. They've seen priests and Levites. They know these people. They know that they should be trustworthy. They're not always trustworthy. So they're tracking with Jesus. They're right along with the story. And then he brings up a Samaritan. And then they probably don't know any Samaritans personally because they're outcasts. But they know about them. Bad. And then the Samaritan's the hero of the story. What? Great teaching technique. Completely catches their attention. As he does in his great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. How does he start? Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. 
come again, Jesus? <laughs> you, you meant to say the rich in spirit, right? Because the rich are the ones who are blessed or happy, right? What, but Jesus doesn't talk. He just keeps going on. No, blessed are the meek. Blessed are you when you get trampled upon and you are persecuted. Okay, yeah, this is very different teaching. I, what do you mean, Jesus? He grabs them. He's intriguing. He's telling stories and using illustrations. He's using common things that they would understand. He's walking through a field and he says, you know what the kingdom of God is like? It's like, it's like wheat and tares growing up together. It's like a, a mustard seed. You know, the seed is very small, but then it grows gradually into this huge plant. You know, you know what? The kingdom of God is like fishing. Some of you are fishermen, aren't you? Kingdom of God is like fishermen. He never misses an opportunity. He's a great teacher. Let me look with me at one illustration in Luke chapter 5. It's early on in Jesus' ministry. Luke 5, verse 1, it says, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. In other words, Jesus is teaching the people, but they're crowding so close to him that he can't project his voice. He can't get out to the crowd. And he's right at the edge of the water, and they're backing him down. They're hungry, and they want to learn so he takes advantage of the opportunity. He says, put out the boat aways. And he puts the boat out. And now he can create spontaneously a small amphitheater. And he can preach to more. And he finishes preaching to more. And he realizes, I also have an opportunity to really drive home a lesson to some of my followers. Verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, We worked hard all night and we caught nothing and you don't catch fish during the heat of the day, (sighs) but I'll do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began actually to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions just because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were with him James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they brought everything, brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. He went from something they knew to something that they didn't know. He's a master teacher. And we're really going to be focusing a lot of our time and attention on on Jesus and how he taught and what he taught and what we can learn from him. Fourth characteristic, what Jesus taught about was immediately relevant. He taught to the real issues of life. He talked about life and death. He talked about marriage and family. He talked about hard things like divorce. And he talked about money and he talked about poverty. And he talked about being wronged and having to forgive. And the need for forgiveness and the sense of guilt. And he talked about submission to authority and even the authorities around them, the Romans. All of these burning issues of their day, which translate often into the burning issues of our day. 
Jesus went straight after these things. He didn't shy away from these issues. And so we're going to look at these issues, what Jesus said about the issues of the day. And then fifth, his teaching was validated with power. Look at one more passage with me in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Matthew 9, 2. They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Which is not really what he most wanted, but it was what he most needed. He needed to be forgiven. Some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. Why? Well, who can forgive sins? Only God, right? Because he's the one who's been sinned against. It's blasphemy. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your, thought, in your hearts? Which is easier just to say? Your sins are forgiven? Now, I can just say the words. Or to say to him, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth even to forgive sins. Then he turned and he said to the paralytic, get up. Pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Wow, I love that scene. Part of me is just because I'm vindictive against the, uh, the Pharisees. But it's, I love those confrontations where he says, your sins are forgiven. And he stirs them up and he provokes them and they're saying, oh, blasphemy, blasphemy. And he says, well, I could just say your sins are forgiven or I could say get up and walk. Get up and walk. And he walks out. You know, and he doesn't walk out like this. He goes, whoa, this is awesome, man. I have been paralyzed. Let's go play some ball. You know, I mean, he's just totally transformed. And everyone is awestruck and they can't deny the miracles. And even when they try to put Jesus on the cross, they can't deny the miracles. He would say to them, who even accuses me of sin? And they can't say anything. They bring all kinds of contradictory false accusations they can't. He lived perfectly. He, he, he performed these miracles wide out in the open, sometimes right in the temple area. They can't deny any of that. And still they rejected the message of Jesus, the greatest teacher who ever walked on the earth, because their hearts were hard. And so the question that I want us to put before ourselves this week is, are we willing to learn from Jesus If you've been a believer for years and years and years and years, I still want you to to allow God to search and examine your heart. Are there areas into which he wants to probe that maybe you're saying no? And your assignment for the week is this. I'd like for you to take one of the Gospels and just read through it. And say, Jesus, make me receptive. Give me a heart that wants to learn from what you have to say. Let's take a few moments silently right now and give the Lord time to have access to our hearts and then I'll close us in prayer. Jesus, we need to hear what you have to say and I pray that we would be the the soft, rich soil, that your word would be planted deeply that our roots would go deep, our branches would extend far, and there would be fruit in our lives because we've listened with a glad and obedient heart. I pray, Father, that uh, during this study, that we really would be transformed more and more into uh, the character and the image of Jesus Christ. 
Father, thank you for Jesus who gives us the hope of life that lasts forever. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.